0: I just thought before we we got into what I I really need to speak about this morning I just wanted to give you a couple of things on prophecy because a a number of you had some amazing prophetic words over your life did you not like is there anybody here called Perkins I remember that moment (laughs) quite is there anybody here called Perkins yes there is and so on and so forth and and uh, just a couple of tips really one is and Julian, who, who was our visiting speaker, wouldn't expect that you'd believe that everything he said was 100%. So we need to be responsible and weigh these things. So often, if you get stuff and it kind of doesn't connect at all with anything you sense or feel or have, have dreamed about or anticipated or aspired to, um, don't feel that you have to somehow conform to this word. Sometimes it's worth just. Stuff like that, just put it on the shelf and seeing what happens later on. Uh, But it's definitely worth, particularly some of these things were, they were game-changing, future-describing words. Now, I believe God sends that kind of prophetic word to call out our destiny and lift up our hopes and get us believing for the best in our lives and shoot higher than we would do otherwise. Uh, But it's worth dialoguing those with people you respect, checking it out. And if you feel then it is God for you, then go to war with it, that's what Paul said to Timothy, he talks about warring with the prophecies and just because it's amazing, just because it's huge and exciting what came of you doesn't mean it's wrong. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of incredible people in this room who have got uh, huge destinies on their lives, who are going to change uh, their, their environments and the culture around them, so don't, don't go, it can't possibly be right, it's too huge, No, maybe your view of you is too small, um, so don't ditch it just because it's just too incredible. Uh, and once you have lined up with it, make a note of it, pray over it, believe for it and expect it to come sometime in your life. That's the other thing to say about prophecy is often the time scale issue is not always easy to know. Uh, I've got stuff I'm still figuring out 20 years on and, and, and that, that's absolutely fine uh, prophecy comes just because you have to uh, wait for it a little bit doesn't mean it was wrong so I just want to encourage you let's take it seriously net the Bible talks about not despising prophetic gift and I think we despise it if we just if we just treat it as a trophy or as a collector's item but actually what we want to do is honor it receive it process it and 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 believe it uh, with all our hearts and go after it God revealed his heart to many of you last weekend and it was so, so exciting. He's backing you all the way to see amazing stuff happen in and through your life. All right? Okay, I feel like we should pray. And uh, yeah, let's do that. That's a really good idea, isn't it? It's church, let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you for your presence again and again and again and again. And we can't, we can't do this without you. And in fact, you've called us into your program You've not asked us to invite you into ours, and uh, I pray this morning we'd remember that. I pray for a real, uh, yeah, understanding. Just as we heard last week, the Holy Spirit would help us with our understanding today, and He would help us break out of old cultures, religious cultures, and into the freedom and the destiny You have for us as a community, and that this city would move into its destiny because we move into ours. And Lord, we just pray for all the places where the gospel's being preached today, that they would have amazing times, amazing breakthroughs. Our friends in churches all around this city, we just pray for your hand on them too. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. We're going to read two passages, Ephesians 4, if you go there, and 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to look at a couple of chunks of Scripture uh, before we, sort of as our jumping off point really today. It's so Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, it's, it's one of those, I actually need a new Bible, but I would hate getting new Bibles because I never find anything, you know what it's like. But you can tell how often I use Ephesians 4 because the page actually falls out now. Um, and there's a reason for that. Ephesians 4, I'm just going to read from verse 11. It was he, that is Jesus, who, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians 12, have you know, particularly enthusiastic basketball players today, but I'm sure they'll grow tired eventually. <laughs> we'll stay excited longer than them. Well, Corinthians 12, and I'm just going to break in in verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles. Isn't that great? have got some people who are called to do that their whole life. Also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret but eagerly desire the greater gifts. And just to give us a little bit of background really, that kind of simply put, for ages, for generations, for hundreds of years, the church in general didn't believe that apostles and prophets still existed today. So in that list of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor and teacher, many, for m- many centuries, certainly since the Reformation, 500 years worth of Bible teaching pretty much excluded the possibility that apostles and prophets were alive today. They believed that they died out in the first century, that pretty much the 12 plus Paul were it, and in terms of apostles and everything, once the completion of Scripture, the, the canon of Scripture had happened, that was the end of the usefulness of apostles. The people who believed that also believed that miracles had died out, healings had ceased, and that we now lived in a day where Scripture uh, was the, the, the center of our of our faith, and, and that Bible teachers and pastors were the ongoing gift that the church needed in order to expand Scripture, build up the body of Christ, and see us come to maturity. For some reason, they didn't un- didn't read the whole verse, which says that these gifts, all four or five of them, were given in or- until it says there's a time limit in the Scripture. And the until is until we all reach the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I don't think we're there yet. So the, we could spend a lot longer on proving the continuing nature of apostles and prophets, but that, I'm just going to leave it at that for now. I think that's enough of a proof text to say that they're still supposed to be here. Because the, the goal, and, and Paul mentions this a couple of times in Ephesians, is that we actually measure up to the whole fullness of Christ. That we walk around as a church and as people like Jesus did in all the fullness that Jesus was and did and taught and the miracles it did. The goal of Ephesians 4 ministries, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor and teacher is to bring everybody up to look like Jesus to the world and to one another. And we ain't there yet. We're making progress but we're not there yet. So all these, all these ministries, and they, they're people with gifting. They're people with a kind of heaven-built-in DNA, a heaven wiring to make them work a certain way so they rub on up, off on us as the church to equip us to be more like Jesus, who in his ministry was referred to as an apostle, as a prophet, as a teacher, as a shepherd, and although I don't think the word evangelist is ever used, he certainly led people to Christ. It's a statement of the blindingly obvious, really, isn't it? As he was the Christ. And he he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life. So he, you know, he led people to Christ. So we'll, we'll qualify him as an evangelist as well. And so what he's done is, rather than put all those gifts in one person now, he's given them to different people in order that as they do their thing in his body, the church, then the church becomes more like he was. So the church looks more and more like him in its apostolic nature, its prophetic nature, its pastoral nature, its teaching nature, its evangelistic nature. We should all look and smell and feel and do it like he did it. And that's the goal of all these these ministries. Now what happened, if you don't believe they exist, and that the only one is left is teacher and pastor, then the senior gift becomes pastor and teacher. Yeah. So if that second verse is true, that it's first apostle, second prophet, third teacher... Then workers of miracles and miracles don't happen anymore and apostles don't exist after the first century the only people that are in play still are the teachers and the administrators we still have them but if you believe the miraculous disappeared from the church in the first century then the only bits of that list that are in play are teacher and administrator and doers of helps and that means that in the order if you get rid of the first two guess who's number one Guess who came up with that hermeneutic? It's true. So teachers came up with a way of interpreting the Bible that meant that they were number one. And they have incredibly great skill at proving that that, that is the case. Isn't that Interesting. And, and, and uh, there's some great little comments in Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians 12 where he actually says the reality is certainly in Pauline literature there's very little information about the gift of teacher in the church. There's lots of teaching but it's not done by teachers, it's done by apostles or it's done by Jesus. Or, but actually the gift of teacher has very little information about it but somehow the teachers have managed to make it this huge thing. And I listened to an excellent Bible teacher the other day, discuss the role of the Ephesians 4 teacher. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, this is an absolute circular argument. So basically, he didn't say this, but I asked him the question later. I said, actually, there isn't much information about the role of teacher in in the New Testament, is there? And, And he agreed there wasn't. So he said, what you've done is take all the teaching that happens in the New Testament and say, because there's teaching, that's what teachers do. Are you with me? So I I can't find the definition of a teacher, but I can see lots of teaching, so therefore that's what teachers do. But actually, really, that's what apostles do. Just stay with me. That's apostolic teaching in the New Testament. That doesn't therefore equal, we then completely know the authority, role, position of the teacher anyway. I'll leave you to think about that. So for hundreds of years, the the only gifts that were in play were pastors and teachers. Some people even believed that evangelists had disappeared. Right up until 1960s, 1970s, some very senior influential people in the body of Christ believed that evangelists had passed away. So the only ministry available to the church now was pastors and teachers. And the outcome of that, those centuries, is that the culture of the church, particularly in the West, has been defined by the DNA, the inclinations and proclivities of teachers and pastors, which has some glorious advantages. But you know, to every great strength, there's a downside. Have you discovered that in your own life? There's some things you can be really brilliant at, uh, but there's a downside to your strengths. Uh, and so we're heavily influenced by a paradigm on scripture, on life, on church, on the spirit, on miracles, heavily influenced by 500 years of teaching that originates in a load of people that didn't believe they actually existed anymore. And we're still on a journey of discovering a hermeneutic and a theology that actually includes the supernatural rather than precludes it. And includes apostles and prophets rather than excludes them, and certainly in this, this country, and I think it 's true around the world, probably in the '70s there was the beginning there was the beginning of an outpouring where apostles and prophets were being looked for, believed in and, and raised up and, and I think in this country, by and large i 'm making a very big generalization here. What they came up inside of was a culture as defined by pastors and teachers. Because there was no other church culture. And actually, it created conflict. I was around just a new Christian in the 70s and the 80s and this this attempt to raise up apostles and prophets created conflict in the body of Christ because they were they were trying to move the whole thing forward in a way that was actually resisted by the the status quo by what already was in place now we need to understand that every every church has a culture so there's a set of behaviors and beliefs in this social group right here that kind of Affect the way we are with one another, what our expectations are of God, what we expect of. Yeah, and somebody defines that. Somebody affects that in us. Uh, I think one of the reasons we get lots of visitors, people show up, they like the atmosphere of Hope Church. They feel, they, they kind of feel something in here that they enjoy. Because it's a culture and the culture sets an atmosphere, and we're all sensitive. Jan did a great job on this a few weeks ago talking about atmospheres. We're actually all very sensitive to atmospheres, even if we acknowledge it or not. But the culture comes, the, the culture sets an atmosphere, and the atmosphere is set by the leadership and the way their style, their inclinations, their DNA. And what I'm saying to you is the atmosphere generally of the body of Christ has been dominated by one leadership set of perspectives, which is the pastor teaching. I want to talk about that because it's not all, I don't, if you're a pastor, we've got some fantastic teachers here in this church. This is not a dig at that, but sometimes you've you've got to adjust. If apostles and prophets exist today it's very important that if it is first, second, third that they're allowed to be in their right position. I want to say a bit more about that because it's not an authority structure I'm talking about but it's about who sets the atmosphere. And and, and here's here's some things I want to talk about. Here's here's some of the things about a teacher, features of a teacher. I've lived with them, worked with them, been friends with them. Uh, I'm not claiming to be one although I teach It's not my wiring, but I've lived with some outstanding people and uh, count them as friends. And and, and this is there's some huge core values that they need to have. All right, so this isn't to say change. This is what they are. And the number one thing is uh, is accuracy. No teacher would ever knowingly say something they thought wasn't accurate and true. That's right, Alan isn't it? You kind of work at being, this is it. This is a certainty. So there's a strong need inside a teacher to be correct. And to bring everybody with them into super correctness. Sorry, sorry Alan. We love you. Do you want to sit at the back? It's all right. As long as you're laughing all the way through, I'm happy. I think there's, there's also this kind of belief in objectivity that through the study of the word, because it's a book that we can obje- achieve some sort of discovery of objective truth and that helps us avoid emotional excesses and, and uh, it keeps us rooted in this strange idea of objectivity which is a subjective thought all on its own but, but do you know what I mean, it's safer because we have a book the book isn't isn't subject to how we feel it's there and it says the same thing every day that you read it and if you can discover what it says you can actually you you, you can actually feel more safe because it isn't subject to the whims of people's emotions or feelings yeah then that's that can be a really good thing they're able to argue a logical case and we are looking for that particularly in the, in the modern church in the West, where we've been assaulted by atheistic thinking and all this kind of stuff, we actually, we, we actually, on the inside, we really would like to know what we believe is true. Please, will somebody convince us again? Because all these people are telling us that it's rubbish and they've proven it's wrong and God... Does, do, do you know what I mean? So actually, to have someone who can give us a good logical argument why what we're doing is fine, it's okay, it's eternally true, we kind of go oh, we need these teachers, man, it's so good. They keep telling me what I believe is okay. I'm not a lunatic. I can go out into the world with some sort of sense of intellectual rigour. I haven't kissed my brains goodbye. I'm not flaky. I believe something that is true through all eternity is objectively true, is recorded, has historicity to it. It has. You know, it's kind of, we kind of go, ooh. Even, even archaeology proves it. Even we go, wow, we've really got some tools to fight the good fight with. And, 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 and a, so a big emphasis certainly on campus is, in campus eval- evangelism becomes apologetics. Uh, it isn't apologising for the gospel. It's explaining it in a rational way and, and dealing with the objections. That, that the problem with that is that we get moved onto the culture's territory, so we're already on the back foot. All right, we're arguing their issues, not presenting our stuff. Do, do you see what I mean? You're already at disadvantage because you're already, you're already. Uh, the assumption is you're accepting their way of coming at life. And therefore, it's worthy having the argument. I would question that, but that's not a point for now. These guys, the ones I know, are incredibly bright. I mean, brain size of planets can remember more verses than I think they're even in the Bible. They, they like, I mean, they just have the capacity to say, you know, you come up with an argument. They say, yes, but is that verse in Deuteronomy ninety four? And you're like, was there even ninety four chapters in Deuteronomy? Um, and I've experienced this, they, they need lots and lots of data and information to change their position. So I remember a, a, a dear friend of mine talking with him about the role of women years and years ago, and I had like one verse for my position, and he wouldn't change. Now he now believes what I believe, but it's taken him like 12 years of study, and I'm like, you agree with me now? He said, yeah, you were right. Ha <laughs> ha. I couldn't, I couldn't give him enough data to convince him, so he's had to go on this journey to be convinced himself. So, as a result, these, this gift values the word highly, which is absolutely fantastic, and also values education. Yeah? So, hence we have Bible colleges, seminaries, Bible schools, and, and, and the fundamental thing is if we get our theology right, our teaching right, we'll raise up great leaders and we'll have awesome churches, and uh, I've heard great teachers teach and their assumption is if we can just teach the right diet if we can get the balance in our doctrine right to the church through a year then actually we'll end up with this glorious church that is end of that is the solution to everything that's an assumption that that comes in does that make sense? But actually, all gifts are like that. Worship leaders think, well, the answer is, we just need to worship all the time. <laughs> of course. Get rid of the preacher and just worship. And everybody will be transformed. The nations will come to us. You know, and prophets are the same. It's like, well, you just, just need to get whacked. Uh, we just need a better holy, you know, better word. Call out your destiny, then we're going to be... Do, do you see what I mean? Evangelists, it's like, what are we doing sitting in here? People are dying out there. They're burning in hell. Next week they could fall under a bus. Why bother even doing church? Go reach the last. They're, they're absolutely... Have you met people like that? Because they are. they do exist. And they're great. But the solution is just go do that? So, okay, here we go. Shepherds, so pastors, so teachers. The pastor and teacher gift often go together and there's a lot of argument in the Greek about is it two or one gift at the end of the list in Ephesians 4? Who cares? <laughs> okay. <laughs> teachers really care, but they don't agree. That's why I said what I said. So I've heard on both sides of the argument, and I look at it and I think, actually, the list isn't a, s- a set of watertight compartments anyway. So I've actually met pastoral evangelists and, you know, prophetic apostles and all that. So is it is, it, 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 we, because if you look at it as some sort of scientific list and which box do you live in, then you've misunderstood it anyway. So I think. Yes, it, would make, it makes sense that the pastor-teacher thing flows together often. That's all I want to say about that. <laughs> if you argue the Greek one way, then you support it. If you argue it the other way, then it's a separate thing. Who, who cares? Teachers care. Okay, we've done that. <laughs> Pastors are concerned as shepherds, as they should be, that the needs of the people are met and I heard yesterday we've got the New Frontiers North team up and one of our guys did an excellent teaching on the role of the Ephesians 4 pastor basic, the basic heart of it is pastors care for people now how they do that and, and where they're coming from and you know, heaven's resources available to them to do it, it was what he did a great job on but that's the basic thing is they're there to care for people their focus is you and I think as a result of that, they're looking for long haul stability. They don't want risky solutions. They're not over bothered by quick solutions. Their priority is that people feel safe. Safety is a high value to pastoral people. Um, they're looking for an outbreak of civilization in the church. You know, people are nice to one another, serve one another, look after one another, love on one another, and they're just super happy. Um, And and as people often, they're wired in such a way that they actually have an ability to express and give empathy and care, sometimes even sympathy to people, and that makes them feel like somebody knows, somebody noticed, and somebody cares. There are people like that. You kind of think, I just want to be like them, around them, because I'm just going to feel noticed, they're not going to try and fix me, they're just going to love me like I do. You? Anyway, there are people like that, believe me. And this all sounds great, and it is great. We need pastors, we need teachers, we need pastor-teachers, teacher-pastors. However they come, we need them. We really need all of those things. Yeah? <clears throat> but there are downsides to their upsides. And, if, and those gifts have dominated the culture of the church for 500 years. And we're living with the downsides of their upsides. We're living with them right here, right in our heads, right in our atmosphere, right in our, our culture. And I believe God's in the business of, of, of shifting some things amongst us. So the, the teacher produces a culture rooted, is looking for agreement well, this is a doctrine and we all line up with it and we all, we all agree with it because disagreement leads to disunity and even separation and that's the history of the last 500 years of the church since the, the Protestant thing happened, which literally means protesters. Uh, we've, we protested against the Catholics and then we've been protested against everybody who doesn't agree with us ever since because the assumption is Doctrinal purity is the goal because the problem before the Reformation was doctrinal impurity. Alright, so there's value in this, or I'm not completely knocking this. But if if that's all you build to, then the scary thing is if you disagree with me. So I need to convince you with an argument to get you to agree with me. Or we'll have another denomination. And I think there's probably been twenty since we started. It's the way it goes. So disagreement ends in separation. Um, you get a culture of caution, not experimentation, because correctness and accuracy is a high value it 's got to be right, and if we change anything it 's going to take twenty years till we 're convinced to make it different. So you have a caution you see what I mean? The downside of the upside is caution. There's, there's not experimentation in the church. If you look at the history of the church the last 500 years, that's true. The church is the slowest moving thing on the planet after a tortoise. <laughs> Second. Second slowest thing on the planet. You know, talk about moving at a times. No, why? Because we don't want to change anything in case we get it wrong. Um, the teacher's... I know, with one exception, because he's sitting in front of me, have have perfectionist tendencies. And that can end up to be quite controlling. All right, maybe my my discernment ometer is off whack this morning. And that can become quite a controlling thing. Anybody know anything about perfectionism? Do you know, it's, it's again, it's back to it's all got to be right, it's all got to be lined up, it's all got to be just so. And we work so hard at it. Uh, and, and, and it's like you, you can end up being so fussy over one tiny thing that you miss the, the bigger picture. And, and you're controlling everybody because it's just got to be so good. Um, you end up with a Christianity, and I think this is where we've been, is Christianity is principle and discipline driven rather than intimacy and ecstasy driven. All right, so you end up, you say that again, you end up with Christianity that is principle and discipline driven. Now there's nothing wrong with principles and discipline, but often what you're doing as a teacher is trying to give people principles to go do, to be more Christ-like. And actually I think what we're learning is, and then we discipline ourselves so you know, we, we learn our verses, I have our prayer times, and we and we kind of we say we don't believe in legalism, but often what we come away with from any preach is, is I just need to spend more time with God. Which is different to coming away from a, a preach or an experience is, I just need to be more intimacy, intimate with Daddy God. Those are two very different things. So we end up principle and discipline driven rather than intimacy and ecstasy driven. So I, I think the New Testament is showing us a an, an, an level of intimacy and a level of ecstatic experience that fuels passion to follow God radically. You can do far more from ecstasy and passion than you'll ever do from discipline. I don't think Jesus disciplined himself to go to the cross. He says he went for the joy. He he was a, he was an ecstatic. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Man, I don't know what that joy in heaven is like, but it's pretty amazing. If you can look at it and go, you know what. All this agony on a cross and all this suffering for the sin of mankind and all that. Well, that's peanuts compared to the joy set before me. That's what it says. That's what the Bible says. Jesus is an ecstatic. He's a joy junkie. Come on, that's what the Bible says. It says he's after joy so much that he'll die to get it. He'll suffer the most indescribable suffering to get joy. It pulls him through an awful death and a resurrection. What for? Joy. Well, it sounds like church should be less serious. Yes! (laughs) So I'm going to say it again. We have ended up with a Christianity that's principle-driven and discipline-driven rather than intimacy and ecstasy-driven. Sometimes in our worship, we don't know what to say. We're having ecstatic moments in worship, are we not, Hope Church? That's good. Because when you go out clubbing and you meet the barman, you're much more likely to give him a word of knowledge if you've had an ecstatic encounter with Jesus than if someone just told you you should do it. Is this making sense? Are we, Okay, we're doing it. Logic ends up superior... It can end up superseding supernatural proof. In the extreme version, the Pharisees were the teacher of teachers. They were teachers on steroids. They were, the, they were the manic teachers of their generation. They were the manic street teachers. They were just gone, <laughs> solid gone. They completely ignored all the miraculous evidence. They weren't interested in Miracles happening right in front of them. They just wanted the early church to stop teaching. We're the teachers. And I don't care if you raise the dead, miraculously escape from prison. I'm not interested in that. You are not allowed to teach. We teach. That's that was their attitude. So Peter gets, an angel gets Peter out of prison. And then he's in the square the next day preaching. And they arrest him again. And they never ask him how he got out of jail. It's insane. That's the extreme. Pharisee is even... You can do a miracle in front of them and they can't see it. They're so blind. In the end, the Word has become the third person of the Trinity. So it's Father, Son and Holy Scripture. And all Holy Spirit activity has been seen for centuries in the church... Holy Spirit activity happens in the preaching of the Word. Now it does, but isn't the only place. But that's kind of been the the hallowed ground of the pulpit is where the Holy Spirit operates in kind of traditional thinking. It is just... Hopefully not upsetting too many people. So the... Huh? The Holy Spirit is seen as... Julian said this, he's seen as the butler in the Trinity, that was a great description. He is the gopher, rather than to be worshipped, listened to, prayed to engage with, fellowship with, just as the Father and the Son. When Jesus left to go to heaven, he said to the disciples, Let's see if you can spot the error in this statement. Wait in Jerusalem until the Bible is written, then go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Or, did he say, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Who think it was the first one? Steve <laughs> was like, Second, it didn't say wait for a New Testament. It said wait for a Holy Spirit. He said wait for an experience, not a book. He said wait for a relationship, not information. Now you could hear this as me pulling down the Bible and that isn't what I'm doing. I'm lifting up Holy Spirit who has been been relegated on the pecking order of Christian thinking for centuries. In fact... Until this, till last century, there was very little written on the role of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit in theological work. You could search the theological works and you get huge amounts of stuff on the cross and, and, and all that kind of stuff, but nothing or almost nothing on the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Spirit, although it's packed in the New Testament. Um, the great theologian, Puritan theologian John Owen did write something on it, but his was the only one in the 1600s, right up until the 1900s, completely neglecting the role of the Holy Spirit in any theology for that. Uh, teachers, you end oh golly this is going on, uh, all training becomes theological. And I've seen that in some of our own training. You know, we're not training people to be prophetic. We're just saying, you need a theology. And somehow that will mean you'll do miracles. In my own experience is I studied harder on theology for 15 years, but I never got more powerful. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't study. I'm, not, I'm just trying to address a, a balance here. And we can end up missing the gift in people because we... We're more preoccupied with their theological accuracy than their Holy Spirit anointing. And teachers see themselves as defenders of the faith, heresy watchers, and so they have a defensive posture that then deposits itself in the church. And we start to be people who who remove ourselves or distance ourselves from people we think are a bit weird or a bit off. Because New Frontiers has the truth, really. Ah! (laughs) I want to ask you a question. Whatever the, we all have a theology. We all have a, we all have one. Is yours the same as it was five years ago? Do you think the same about everything you know about God, the Church, the Bible? It was five years ago. I don't agree with me from five years ago. Okay, pastors, a flock centered. They're 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 gatherers, they're people, and I I don't just mean individuals, they're they're the flock-centered. So the downside of being flock-centered is you can become territorial. Well, there's the flock and there's a wall and we keep the bad guys out and we keep the good guys in and you're mine. And no one's going to love you like I do, so why do you want to think about another church? And the emphasis becomes on church at the expense of the kingdom, which is a a larger concept than the church. And I've had these discussions with pastors, so they don't want to expose people to disappointment. So rather than take risks of faith and pray for the sick and launch out, they'll keep it cautious so that we don't get... They'd rather be not disappointed and ill... Because somehow disappointment is like you know, the thing to be avoided at all costs. Because it's trying to keep it safe. So if you put these two lists of negatives together, you know, the downsides of the upsides, you end up with a Christianity that is well informed, able to argue its point, lives from principle, and seeks to engage the culture at a philosophical argument level when it's trying to take an influence. So we make we make moral campaigns where we talk about abortion and the principle of life and we 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 you know we'll speak about how it's wrong to have civil partnerships and, and we kind of we're trying to have a, a rational dialogue we're about good deeds we're caring we're safe but we're a bit same old same old cuz got to be careful got to be right the the bad bit is we end up controlled, uncreative, cautious and conservative and denominational because we're building to this sort of agreement thing, we have inertia, we don't change quickly and any movement, it doesn't matter if it's New Frontiers, it can end up like that because denominationalism is a spirit it's an attitude and and a literal spirit that comes on a movement and starts to make it this sort of only just express it insular and uh, defensive and on the back foot. We end up with a people who know a lot but have no, you know, so high knowledge, low power, fat in word and thin in the spirit and suspicious about supernatural manifestations. I had conversations yesterday. People hear about what's happening in this church and they're like, well we love you Andy but we think you're a bit weird. (laughs) You know what? I'm happy. I'm loving it. I'm loving what God's doing. So the outcome for people is in the church as it has been, has been a bad place for sensitives and creatives. Because it's been controlled, conservative, cautious, correctness. Sensitive people don't do well in that environment. Creative people don't do well in an environment where correctness is important. It's like, ooh, I've got a new idea, wouldn't it be wonderful, but ooh, it might not be right. I mean, so many people, when they start to prophesy, the thir- first thing they say is, it might not be right, but I'm like, who cares? Just prophesy. Anyway, so you, don't, you, find it, you find sensitives and creatives get depressed in church. It's a bad place for seers and prophets because they don't fit an environment made by teachers. They're treated with with suspicion and are sometimes even seen as a threat because it's really hard for someone who's living in the realm of, 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 of logic and reason to deal with someone who's seeing angels, demons rivers of, of gold, um, and, and it's having powerful, powerful subjective experiences and leading other people into powerful subjective experiences. They just kind of put you in the weird box and go and form another denomination. And that's happened in the church over and over and over again. So the sensitives, creatives, prophetics, seers, we, we, we've had a couple with us last weekend and they We went as a team up to their church and the leader was trying to get us to talk about the things we were seeing in the angelic and I was really reluctant because sometimes people, you start talking about stuff you're seeing, they go, "Ah, you're a nut job and they don't listen to anything else you've got to say. So I was kind of really reluctant to start talking about it. Anyway, we did start to talk about it and then this other couple around the table start to light up, don't they? You were there. They're like, wow! And the woman particularly is like, Wow, you're talking my language. I thought I was going crazy, literally. She thought she was nuts. Because I was driving down the road the other day and I saw all these angels over this city and this fire and all this stuff. And I had this vision just driving the car and we were like, come on, we want what you've got. But the church she was in was like, you're nuts. <laughs> and she was being there to think she was nuts. And this is a gift from God. This is a New Frontiers church. Game changers. People, there are people who change atmospheres by their very presence. They shift things. They come in a room, they do something and it goes... <coughs> Pastor teachers don't like them. <laughs> Out of the box thinkers tend to be held at arm's length. <coughs> because what happens is, is it gets a bit insecure and you end up needing to centralise power in order to keep it safe and you just I've been in elders meetings a lot of years and the kind of assumption is if we keep our hands on this thing we'll keep it safe because we've got the pastoral wisdom and there's all these immature people in this church and if we don't keep our hands on it they're going to make a mess and the last thing you want in this mindset is a mess because mess is unsafe equals bad I repent. I've been there. And the people that are thirsty for God's manifest presence and power make up with a teaching diet, which they're told is enough, because if we just get the doctrine right and we teach you enough and we get it there, we'll have the perfect church one day. And they're like, okay, okay, yeah, and they prove it from Scripture. and it's like Inside they're like, but we want a miracle. Inside they're like, God, we want, feel, we want to feel God come. Yeah, but just get a good teaching, you'll be fine. No, I want to feel God. Yeah, but if you just know the whole of Leviticus, then you'll be absolutely fine. You're like, I want to feel God, not learn Leviticus. You know, <laughs> Eventually, the fire and the hunger goes down and down and down because they're told that it's not legitimate. And I know people, I've been talking to people like this all the time. And they're hungry, but they're in an environment that says, we're going to teach you profound things and you will be amazing. And they're going, oh, it's boring. It just took 40 minutes to do a very complicated explanation to tell me to love Jesus more. <laughs> I've sat in messages like that. You're so fascinated with your own analysis of the truth that you're off on one, but the point is, love Jesus. I'm like, I could have said that in a minute. Uh. This is going on the internet. And I don't care. I'm I'm starting to get a bit kind of, I don't know if this is righteous or not, but it's coming out, all right? I'm getting really, actually quite stirred up and on the edge of angry because I'm talking to so many people who have got a thirst for manifest presence, but they're in dullness and they're being told that dullness is good. And they're asking me, What do we do? I've got my kids doing it. I've got people I mean, What do we do and why is it like this? And I'm like, this is the reason. I've had lots of discussions about this. The culture is being shaped by people who are not equipped to do it any different. They are equipped for very important and profound things that we need, but not for this. You Probably wouldn't be here if you didn't agree with me, basically. Preaching to the choir. So when we look at that that chapter in one Corinthians twelve, it says first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, fourth workers of miracles, which I think probably means evangelists. Philip was fundamentally a worker of extraordinary miracles, but we'll leave that for another day. It doesn't mean the apostle is the boss over the prophet. Who then gets to rub the teacher's nose in the dust? <laughs> it's not the kind of super hierarchy of the kingdom. We've got these heavyweight dudes who are apostles who are very serious and tell you off if you get it wrong, and, and and you know prophets that can read your mail and scare you with all their knowledge about how bad you are. And they cross these teachers because of all their kind of lack of revelation. And no, no, it's not about that at all. That's human thinking. God's pattern for his church is not a hierarchy. It just isn't. I'll say a bit more about this next week. This is why you need people who've seen the heavenly blueprint, otherwise, they'll borrow an earthly one. And we've been doing that for decades. You can't get this out of a book, you can only get it from heaven. can't get it out of a management book. God is not raising up managers for his church. He's raising up apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers who equip. They don't manage you. They equip you to be you, to take responsibility for you. They're not here to control you. They're here to equip you and release you. Hierarchy creates dependency. We're trying to create maturity oh, i'm going to get off on too many points this this is about who is the culture setter who is the atmosphere creator who should be the who who in heaven's design of how earthly church works who who is the ones that we should release to get the atmosphere right Who has the primary say in setting the behaviours, beliefs and attitudes so that the atmosphere and the culture of the church is a healthy one? That's what it's about. It's not like who's the boss. It's about who's got the gift to make it happen. Are you making sense? If you put teachers at the top, I know this because I've lived in the anointing of a prophet and I know what it's like to be under a teacher and it's a pain in the ass. It's a pain in the, the bottom end of your body. Oh dear. We love you. <laughs> you need a different environment for prophets to flourish. And I apologise, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, but I did. You can't sort of ravel it back in your mouth, can you? Um, it's frustrating living with people who can't see what you see and don't think it's valid or valuable. You want to live with, even if they can't see what you see, you at least want it to be valued. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to value everybody. Even if we don't get you, we value. You. <laughs> do you see? Because God values you, he made you, he gave you what you have, so that's what we do. We think you're amazing. That's our basic position. You're amazing. And it's not like, we're not making it up, we're not faking it, that's what we really believe. So prophets do badly under teachers and pastors, because prophets scare pastors and teachers. So pastors and teachers try to control prophets. And that's not pleasant for either side. I believe if we should get the order right and allow apostles to be apostles and prophets to be prophets and, and them to be the foundation of the church, which is what it says in Ephesians, they create an environment where pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles, prophets, they all flourish and fly in their gift. And actually they preserve us from the downsides of everybody's upsides. So it actually frees teachers to teach, but then we don't get bogged down with the, down, the downsides of their upsides because there's a different environment. They're not shouldering the responsibility of creating the environment that we all have to live in that can get on and do what we need them to do, which is teach and develop a theology for this, this move of God that we're in. I don't think we have a decent theology yet that is rooted in a belief that the miraculous still happens today. Most of the theology books that we, a lot of the theology books that I read anyway, are rooted in the idea that it all died. And you have to kind of read back into it. I think there's still a need for a, a development of theology for the, for the move of the Holy Spirit. and There are people doing it, but I think we need more of that to, to happen. So historically, apostles were either didn't exist, or you only acknowledge them when they were dead. <laughs> so you get Smith Wigglesworth, apostle of faith, but nobody told him that when he was living. But the, you know the book about him is called that. Uh, or we've seen apostles as missionaries. So anybody who goes to I don't know, put drops in people's ears or build schools or whatever around the world, they're, the missionaries are apostles and. We need a new understanding of apostolic ministry if we're going to have an apostolic culture and environment where all the gifts can flourish. That's the absolute center of of this kind of shift that's taking place. And that's why I'm going to take two weeks over this. So let's just spend five minutes getting you going, thinking about this, and then we'll Come back to it. As all right, hmm. I don't know. Hmm. I want to go home now. My head hurts. I mean, depends how long you've been in church. But I've kind of ripped up church. I've ripped up what I've been in for a lot of my life. But I want to change the world, not just do church. And what we've been doing is not the whole story. It's a good start. You know, so it's not like we've been in it as rubbish. We, we've, we've moved, but we have, we have further to move. Um, and, and I think we need to go back to the original. A lot of our thinking about apostles has been governed by looking at Paul's letters first. So certainly in our movement, it seems to be, it's increasingly become that apostles are, te- are great doctrinal teachers, they're good at managing lots of churches or, and planting churches and that, that's all good. But Jesus, if you go back to Matthew 10 and, and don't bother turning to it now, I'll just tell you about it and we'll look at it again. The first time apostle is used in, in the New Testament or well in scripture is where Jesus tends out, sends out his disciples and, and I just want you to notice that at this point they've not built any churches. In fact, they haven't done much of anything other than follow Jesus around. And at this point it says, that <laughs> he calls them apostles in Matthew 10. And he tells them, this is what apostles do. You are my apostles. He says, go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Proclaim, preach, or in other words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he gives them a message. Then he says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold nor silver, no copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff for your labors, for the labourer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in that place and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace. Peace, man. That's what it sounds like, isn't it? Peace, man. Let your peace descend on that place. And if it doesn't, let it come back to you. Well, what does that look like, anyway? So he gives them a message, the kingdom. He says, demonstrate it by casting out demons and healing the sick and all that fun stuff. And he gives them the power to shift an atmosphere. It says you have a peace on you and I believe that's rooted in the bigger word in, in the Hebrew which is shalom which is this whole sense of not just peace in mean, absence of anxiety but presence of well-being. The overwhelming goodness of God rests on you and you can discharge it in the atmosphere of the place you walk into and if they don't want it you can take it back and go away and give it to somebody else. Cool. So you have a message, you have power, and you have an atmosphere shift capability, Mr. Apostle. Go do it. Uh, I think it's the Luke account of the 70 who he gives a similar thing to. They all come back like, even the demons are, you know, they're they're, they're submitting to your name, Lord. (laughs) This is really cool. He says, Yeah. And he says, He rejoices. That's that word I think Julian referred to. He spins around. He's so delighted. And he says, Don't rejoice in this, but that your name's written in the book of heaven. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. They were going around and deposing all the principalities and powers in the villages he was going to preach in next. (laughs) anyway I thought that was exciting (laughs) so these new apostles rock up they cast out a few demons heal the sick let their peace come man and the demons are all going ah, we're not in control anymore so much stuff Okay, I'm just going to have to land it with this. If you look, I haven't got time to look at Acts, but I've got time to say one thing. Every, pretty much every city, I did a study on all the cities that the apostles and those that they sent rocked up in. Everyone has a phrase like this. The men who turned the world upside down are here as well. The whole city was in uproar. There was great joy in that city. The whole city was divided. They filled the whole city with their teaching. So if you just look at the Gospels and Acts about apostolic ministry, they're people who are preoccupied with the presence of God. In fact, they're so not occupied with the needs of the people that when that issue comes up in Acts 6, it says we can't be be fussed with this. We've got to give ourselves to the word and prayer. We've got to stay in the presence. Hello? We've defined church leadership as people who look after us and if they're absent and not thinking about us, they're not doing their job. These guys are saying that isn't our job. They're preoccupied with bringing this Spirit of God impact from heaven to earth. And their preoccupation for every new believer in every new town is that they get the same Holy Spirit presence, atmosphere-shifting impact in their life. Is this making sense? They're occupied and passionate about city transformation through power encounter, not campaigns or social action. I'm not against doing those things. I'm just saying what they were doing. They were occupied with seeing miracles, healings and deliverance and setting people free. Their anointing and authority causes regional demonic powers to fall and be deposed. I believe we're in the middle of a major reformation of how we do church, what it looks like and that there's a new emerging understanding of the role of the apostolic and prophetic which will, is, is and will reshape the church, and it's happening all around the world, and it's going to be the most fruitful season in the church's history because the world is yet to see the full power of a New Testament apostle and prophet, but it's going to. It's coming. It's coming. What we've had has been an attempt. It's been a, it's been a step towards it, but I just think there's so, so much more, and we'll talk more about that next week. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. (laughs) Why? (laughs) It's like one of those appeals. Anybody want to be an apostle? Come forward. No, we're not going to do that. (laughs) By the time I'm done next week, no one will come forward. (laughs) No, that's not true. Uh, Let's just let's just stand and and pray. For each other. Wouldn't that be good? Because we need to to break out of some religious thinking that that we've grown. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian a year or 30. You can have inherited some things that mean that, that you're not as creative, you're not as free, you're not as passionate, you're not as ecstatic. In fact, sometimes the church has taught us that ecstasy is wrong. It's actually the source of our joy and our momentum. Are you, are you with me? We need to get rid of some of that stuff off our lives. We really do. So what, why, don't you, why don't you pray for one another to get the good. To just You don't need massive. Just say, God, just help us get rid of the bad stuff and have more good stuff. Or Pray for more ecstasy in the person's life. Pray for more revelation in the person's life. Get some prayer for you. And uh, when we're done, we'll get some tea, coffee, cake.